All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Job chapter 4. In Job chapter 4, we are going to run into, in a very intricate way, the friends of Job. And the question is, as we get into all this, what do we do with Job's friends? You almost get them with friends like these, but don't get there quite yet, okay? Uh, God takes care of that at the end, by the way, when he looks and says, with friends like these, you better have Job pray for you. But as these friends come, what do we do with them? How do we get our fingers around who they are and why they're there? And again, we really have to go back to the narrator of the book who talks at the end of chapter 2 about the fact that they came for two reasons. They came to comfort Job. They came for sympathy. We start in chapter 4, and you almost think they came to beat the poor guy up, and he's already down. But that's not why they came. And part of what we're lacking when we get into the book of Job, and part of the issue with chapters 4 through uh, almost chapter 40, is the fact that it is a long section of Hebrew poetry. And when they speak, they're speaking in poetic language. And so there's some difficulty to understanding, number one, sometimes it's difficult to figure out, what did he just say? You ever have a friend that just rambles on, and at the end of the conversation you look at somebody else and say, what did he or she just say? You almost get there if you're not careful with some of these chapters in the book of Job. Not only that, but as they go on, we have to remember, we're missing one key element. It would be nice if the book of Job was an audio Bible book. They're having a conversation. This is real life taking place. Job is in anguish and he is depressed. He is struggling. And you don't get the tones of voice and the way things are being dealt with in this section of the book, which would be very helpful. You get some clues and we're going to talk about that as we go through. But try to remember that these are real conversations taking place. These are real people who've gone out of their way to be with Job and consider the fact that Job was very rich, very influential. How many people came to Job's aid when Job was as low as he'd ever been? Three friends. So their heart's in the right place. It's why I entitled our message this morning, Sincere but Sincerely Wrong. Because even, I think, as you look at this first speech, And as we look at this first speech, you're going to get a very eloquent speech here from Eliphaz. In fact, he's going to go on and on and on. And I'm telling you right now, I encourage you to get into these chapters again and read over them through the week. We're not going to cover every single word of every single thing that he says. But we are going to try and pull out the gist of what he's talking about. Get those basic ideas down. Find out why he's saying some of what he says. But he starts out with this very eloquent passage in chapter 4, and he kind of lays the foundation for the rest of what's going to go on throughout the rest of this book as these friends are talking to Job. And again, we know the end of the book. We know the beginning of the book. Did Job's friends, were they cute? Did they pull up the book of Job and read chapters 1 and 2 before coming to visit him? They had no idea about chapters 1 and 2. Job has no idea about chapters 1 and 2. I didn't write the book, but maybe it would be better if we didn't know chapters 1 and 2. What would you have concluded about Job in a situation had you not been privy to chapters 1 and 2? Job is very influential. Job is rich. Job has a large family that seems to be doing very well. He's got a wife. He's got everything working for him. Everything's going well. And suddenly, in one day, he loses all of it. What would you think? Isn't it our normal reaction to look at what did Job do? 
Because God was blessing. God was blessing so that he was the richest man in his area of the country, in that Middle Eastern area. He was influential. He had it all. He was taking care of his children spiritually as well as financially, working through all those things. And then one day he lost it all. So the normal question would be, what did he do? He had God's blessing. He had God's favor. He lost it. I wonder why. And we look at Job's friends, and that's where they are. As they get here, they're wondering, what did they do? And again, we know from the end of the book, what does God say? God looks at the friends and says what? You're in trouble because you got it wrong about me. Job got it right. Now, is Job's attitude good throughout the rest of this book? Job's struggling, okay? If you look at Job and say Job is going to be righteous and everything he says is going to be good in the rest of this book, you're wrong, but the gist of what he says, God says what? Job spoke rightly about me. You spoke wrong. And so as we get into this, we need to keep a couple things in mind. Number one, the fact that God brings this judgment on these people at the end, it doesn't mean that everything they said was wrong. In fact, many of Job's friends are theologically right on point. They have some very key things to say to us about God and who he is. And In fact, Paul is going to take one of Eliphaz's phrases from this speech, and he's going to quote him to the Corinthians, saying, this is what you need to get a handle on. There are other books, Psalms and several other books, are going to take quotes out of this speech from Eliphaz and use them in other places of Scripture, because Eliphaz doesn't have it all wrong. He's sincere. He's actually a student of God. I was going to say a student of the Scripture, but he didn't have the Scripture, so keep that in mind. He had oral tradition about God at this point. And as we go through this, we have Eliphaz giving all of this information based on what he knows about God, and much of it is correct. So what's the problem? He may have been theologically correct, but he didn't understand Job. And he doesn't understand what God's up to. And sometimes... And the reason I bring this up is, why do we study this? Well, sometimes we know a lot of things about God, and that's good. We've got to get into this book and study God. The problem is, do you know all there is to know about God? Do you know enough about God to make judgments based on what you say? Some of us walk around, and as we see people struggling maybe at times, as we see people just living around us at times, we are the prosecutor, the judge, and the jury. We look at somebody else's life and we say, this must be what's going on. That's what Job's friends are about to do. Not only do we do that, but we say, not only is this going on, but we take another step into the district where we should not be, and we say, this is why it's happening. I know why that's happening. Or, I know why he or she is doing what they're doing. Do you really? You know who knows the motives behind everything we do? God does. And we need to be careful when we judge on that basis because as Job's friend brings very many times truths about God and the way he works, partial truths about God and the way he works, they misjudge Job because they misunderstand the whole situation. So there are things for us to learn from Job's friends, positively and negatively as we go through this. So there's value to these things. We're going to see Job's reactions to his friends, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but again, it would be very, very interesting if we could get the tone of voice and the look on the face of Job as he responds to his friends. Are Job's friends very kind to Job in the way that they bring what they bring? 
As the book goes on, I think as we see the first couple of speeches in this book, they are very sympathetic. They're concerned about Job. They believe something very, very keen about God, that if you are whatsoever you sow, that shall you also reap. And they're trying to get Job back in line with God. But is Job using a filter when he answers them often? Read this and really read it for what's there. Job is a very clever man. He's a very wise man. He's got a very quick tongue. And by the end of this speech, and by the end of these speeches, as Job responds to his friends, he's getting a tongue lashing from them, but Job's just not standing there taking it. He's giving it back. And he's giving it back in a pretty good way. And he's leaving them sometimes, and I think that's why you've got three guys talking. Well, this one just got a tongue lashing. He's got some time to think about what he's going to say next. So the next one takes over. And so there are things we need to learn from Job's friends and from Job's reaction too. Now, how do we do this? How many of you started reading through Job chapter 4, tried to get to the end of the book? Come on, some of you have. Raise your hand. I know you're out there. All right, you don't have to raise your hand, but the question, how many of you made it to the end? Good for you. I'm impressed because you know what Job becomes at times? When you're reading through the book of Job, you get about to chapter 15, 18, 20, and it's like reading through Leviticus. It does you in on your Bible reading, and it shouldn't. Leviticus is a great book. Maybe someday we'll preach through part of that. But you're looking through this, and you get in there, and you get bogged down in all this Hebrew poetry. How many of you love poetry? Good for you. I don't. Okay, the, the re- and as a preacher, it, it drives me crazy because all that imagery, what did he say and what did he mean? And I was a, I was a little bit like Job when I was a junior high. I know you'll have a hard time believing that. I, my, my English teachers would try to teach us poetry, and they'd go through, this is what he said. And I thought, okay, I can, I can buy that. This is what he meant. You ever have that smart aleck in your class? My mom was a teacher, too. I caught it at home after I got home. But she'd go, this is what it meant. I didn't care what it meant. I didn't really think she knew what it meant. So I'd raise my hand. Hasn't he been dead for so many years? How do you know what he meant? Not the way to talk to your teacher. But I look at this and I say, you know, some of this is hard to understand. And so what do we do with it? Number one, I'm going to give you two things as we go through these speeches. Two ways for you as you're reading and as we're preaching things to take home with you. Number one, figure out what the main idea is. It's not too difficult as you're reading through these speeches. There's usually only one or two main ideas, and the rest of it's all support material. Remember, they think Job has sinned grievously against the Lord. So they're going to bring their point on, this is what you need to do, and then the rest of it's a lot of support material. It's not that the support material is bad, but if you want to figure out what's going on in a nutshell and appreciate it better, read those speeches and say, okay, what was Eliphaz's point? Why did he take these two or three chapters to say what he did? Number two... And I know this is foreign to some of you, and some of you do this all the time, and I I suggested it once before, and some of you smiled at me and said, no, I'm not going to do that. But can I encourage you, if you've got another version of the Scripture, you read it in what you normally read it in, but try another translation. This is poetry, and you can get a lot of nuances from a different translation of the Scripture. And if you've only got one translation in your house, but you're open to it, you just don't have one, come see me. I'll get you a copy. I've got all kinds of them on my shelf. I've got, one, I've got an ESV tucked in the pulpit that I never use. We'll get you a copy of it, but I recommend it because sometimes when you get it written in just a little bit different way, especially in poetry, suddenly the light bulb goes on. And you can figure out what's going on there. So I encourage you to do those two things. Now let's get into what we're looking at today. Sincere, but sincerely wrong. Eliphaz leads out. Let's look at Job chapter 4 in the first couple verses. 
It says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him in you who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not the fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Here comes Eliphaz, and he's about to lay the foundation for almost every speech that comes after him. Now, you still need to read the other speeches, because they're different. But he's laying the foundation. He's opening the door for all these things. And when you look at what Job, you remember what Job said in chapter 3? For seven days there was silence. And then Job opens up his mouth, and when Job opens up his mouth, what does he say? What's the gist of that message? I wish I'd never been born. And if I'd got to be born, I wish I'd been stillborn. And since that didn't happen, it sure would be nice if God would take me now. Was Job wrong in his perspective of that? A couple chapters before, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He nailed that. In other, the next chapter, chapter 2, he looked and he said, should we receive good things and not difficult things from the Lord? He nailed that. But when he comes out in chapter 3 after talking to himself for seven days, he didn't nail that very well. No longer was God's idea the best idea. He just had it. He was physically worn out and sick. How many of you have gone through sickness for days? Doesn't it wear on you? And here's to give, give Job a little bit of a break. I don't want to just beat him up because he's been sick for at least seven days that we know of, probably before that. He's been in pain. He's had oozing sores, head to toe. Like, oh, don't bring that. But that's so much so that you can't even recognize him when his friends come there. And so Job is suffering. And when Job looks at it, he says, you know what? If I can't have the blessing of God on my life, then I'd just rather be gone. And he's not totally wrong there, but what he's missed is, just like his friends, it's not the blessing of God that he's missing. God's allowed this in Job's life for his glory. Again, think about God's admiration for Job. What would I, I don't know what, I'd give anything to have God look at Satan and say, have you considered my servant and put my name in there? He is blameless. He fears me. He runs from evil. I mean, God had a high opinion of Job. And and don't miss it at the end of this book. Job's got to repent. Job's had a bad attitude. It gets to all of us at times. Job struggled with the circumstances. But in chapter 42, God still has a high regard for Job. And so don't miss that as we go through here. But here are these words of consolation. And Eliphaz, you ever get ready to talk to somebody and you knew it was going to be a difficult conversation because you needed to tell a good friend because you cared about them what they really didn't want to hear? Isn't it easier to commiserate with people? I think Job would have had a much better reaction in chapter 6 and 7 if Eliphaz had said, Job, you are such a great guy. We don't know why this has happened to you. What was God thinking? We don't understand this. But that's not what Eliphaz is going to tell him. Eliphaz has looked at the whole situation and concluded, Job, whatever you did, it was a whopper. You are in big trouble. You've got to get this right. We love you, buddy, but look at yourself. 
God is going after you because you've done something wrong. And so Eliphaz looks at him and he says here in the beginning of this, don't you love the way he puts this? Whenever there's a difficult conversation, don't you try to figure out how to break the ice. Here's Eliphaz breaking the ice. He looks and he says to Job, now Job, after this whole tirade about I wish I'd never been born, I wish I were dead, is that if one ventures a word with you, and there's the understatement of the year, just a word, then he's going to go on for chapters. Would you be impatient? And the idea there in the Hebrew that impatient is, would you be irritated? Would you get angry with me? Because Eliphaz wants to tell him the truth, but he's still his friend. He wants to give him sympathy and comfort, but as he listens to Job in chapter 3, after sitting there for seven days, he realizes, oh boy, this is a bigger problem than I thought it was. And so he looks at him and says, would you be angry? But we find out the heart of Eliphaz a little bit after that. You, know, you ever look at somebody and say, you know, do you, can I tell you something? And from the bottom of the heart, you want to look at him and say, no, I'd rather not. I'd rather you didn't tell me. That's where Job is. I mean, let's be honest. And Eliphaz knows that because what does he say next? Yet who can keep from speaking? There's two human weaknesses going on here as Eliphaz gives his speech. Number one, there's Job. Job doesn't want to hear it. Job wants to commiserate. Job wants God to take him home, and God, he wants God to do it now. Now, Job's not going to do it because he still respects and fears God. But if God does it in Job's mind, that's okay. So God, you've taken everything away. My health's been bad. It doesn't look like it's going to get any better. So just finish this. And Eliphaz begins looking at him, and he says, well, here's my consolation, Job, but as I begin to give it to you, is it okay if I talk to you for a few minutes? Job never responds. Two chapters later, he probably wished he had responded. But he didn't respond. And so Eliphaz goes on. And he says here, he starts with praise. You know, they talk, they call this the sandwich method, the Oreo method, whatever you want. But, you know, say something good before you have to go after somebody for something that needs to be taken care of. And then finish with something nice. And it comes from way back here. This is exactly what Eliphaz does. Look at chapter, verses 3 and 4. He says here, if one ventures a word with you, We'd be impatient. Then it says, Behold, you've instructed many, and you've strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you've made firm the feeble knees. He looks at Job and he says, Job, your life and ministry has been commendable. Now, here's how this poetry works, and I'm going to use these two phrases to kind of give you an indication of what's going to happen all through the book as we try to interpret it. You've got two different phrases here, they're parallel phrases. When you see the couplet that's here, first of all, he says at the beginning of this, Behold, you've instructed many. And that is parallel, means the same thing with a little bit more coloration to it as the first part of chapter, uh, verse 4. Your words have upheld who was stumbling. So those are working together. The second part of the phrases are going to work together as well. But these first part of the phrases, he looks at Job and says, You know, you've stepped out and given the word of God to those who need it. You've helped all kinds of people. And that word stumbling there is a very interesting word again. In the Hebrew, the idea behind the stumbling is someone who is bowed down under a heavy load. And often that load is sin. And so he looks at Job and said, you know, you found other people who were struggling because their lives weren't right. And you went to them. Not only did you go to them, but he says in the beginning of that verse again, he looks and he says, you have strengthened their weak hands. And verse 4, the end of it, you've made firm their feeble knees. 
So he's looking at Job and he's saying, you went to somebody who had an issue, had sin in their life. They were bowed down with it. And what you did was take them the truth in order to strengthen their hands to where they needed to be. To strengthen their knees, to get them back on track spiritually is what he's saying again in a very poetic way. And so he looks at Job and says, you've had a great ministry. If he stops there, maybe Job will crack a smile after seven days. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He goes right into that to the, okay, here's the middle of my Oreo. This is what I'm really getting at. And and look at verses 5 and 6. But now it's come to you, and you are impatient. Does Job feel impatient? Yeah, he does. It's it's not that Eliphaz is wrong. It's Job befuddled and irritated with his friends and with God to some extent. It's going to come out in the next chapters. And he looks at him and says, Job, you know, you used to help people, but now you're the one with the weak hands. You're the one with the feeble knees. He said, it touches you and you are dismayed. You who had all the answers for everybody else, what happens when it happens to you? And again, isn't there a lot of truth in that for all of us? Isn't it easier to tell somebody else what's wrong in their life and what they need to do to fix it than to have somebody come and tell us? And so here's Job and his friends are saying, you know, you've been great at helping people in sin, but guess who's got a problem now? And you've got a big one. We need to get this taken care of. And again, the heart of this is we need to get this taken care of. Now, the reason I say it would be great to have the intonation, it would be great to have the the facial expressions. What do you think Job's facial expression was after that? Job has insisted and is going to continue to insist till the end of this book. I am a man of integrity. I have not sinned. This is not because of my, not that I can't be a sinner, but this has not come because of my sin. Is Job right? God's going to tell him he was right at the end of the day. Does Eliphaz think Job's right? No, buddy, it's, it's come home to you and you're dismayed. You don't want to see the sin. Open your eyes. Get that sin right with God. And you wonder what Job did. My guess is he had this look on his face like, you got to be kidding. Because look at what he says. He asks him two rhetorical questions. Rhetorical. He doesn't want the answer. He wants Job to reflect on this and say, oh, you know what, Eliphaz, you're right. And so, first of all, he asks him this question. Is not your fear of God your confidence? What's the answer to that? For Job, yes. God said I fear him. That's why I know I'm in good stead. And so Eliphaz has given him that much. He's saying, what about your fear of God? And your integrity. Isn't your integrity the fact that you are blameless before God, the thing that gives you hope? And the answer to that is, yes, for Job it was. Job, Satan, God looked at Satan and he said, look at Job. He fears me. He's a man of integrity. And Job would be able to say, that's right. And it's what he says all through this book. That's where I am. But why is Eliphaz asking him that question? Because of his next section. The idea of sowing and reaping. He looks at Job and he says to Job, in the midst of all this, you know, there's a law. There's too many down there. There's a law that goes, it goes with scripture, it goes with God. And the idea is, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also, that shall he also reap. Is Eliphaz right? Go to Galatians. Paul's going to use the same idea, slightly different wording, but he's going to tell him that's where we are. Eliphaz puts it this way in verse 7. Remember, who, was, who, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. He's looking and saying, who was ever innocent and ran into trouble? Now here's where Eliphaz has a little bit of problem with his theology. 
Does God ever let difficult things happen to godly people? Yeah, and we got a whole, Paul covers it in First and Second Corinthians. Sometimes he brings suffering into our life just so that we can help somebody else when they suffer. You ever have go through something like that and say, God, can you find somebody else to help them? I've had enough. But, but God's doing it for a purpose, and it's not necessarily because of sin. So is Eliphaz right that whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap? Yes. Is Job reaping all the problems because he sinned? No. And so there's this dynamic going on in the midst of that. But Eliphaz, he is dynamically going after Job with this, saying this is where we are, this is what's happening, and this is why. Look at the rest of that passage. He talks about the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger are they consumed. Why did Eliphaz use that picture in verses 8 and 9? What just happened to Job? The breath of God. The wind comes in, knocks down the house. He was all ten of his kids. Does Eliphaz know that story by now? I'm guessing he does. And he's looking and saying, God was in this. Was God in that? Don't miss it. It doesn't happen unless God gives Satan permission. God was in it, but not quite the way Eliphaz thinks he's in it. God's looking down on Job with admiration and saying, watch this. You can do your worst to Job, and he will not curse my face because he does not serve me just for what I gave him. Eliphaz is looking and saying, God looked down and said, Job, that was a no-no. And since you're not going to get it right, my anger's against you and I'm wiping. So truth in there? Some. Total truth? No, Eliphaz doesn't have it totally right. And here is Job listening to all this to the point that we get to verses 12 through 21. We get the vision of Eliphaz. And again, I was hoping to get to Job's reaction, and we may not get to that today. We'll get to it next week because it'll fit with the next speech. But the vision of Eliphaz. Now you look and say, what in the world? Remember how God began talking in the times of the patriarchs with some of the patriarchs? This isn't anything new. Abraham, deep sleep, God comes and speaks to him. Because he didn't have this yet. You've got Jacob, vision of God. Struggling through the night. God's actually there, touches his hip. All that going on, but God's teaching him in visions. You got it in the New Testament. We had the whole Old Testament, but when Peter needed to get a handle on what the Gentile situation really was and that God loves the Gentiles, how did he get that? God came to him in a deep sleep. And he gave him a vision. So don't look at Eliphaz and say, oh, oh, this guy's a little bit off his rocker. This is probably God's message to him, but probably not his message for Job. Eliphaz never tells us when he had this vision. It's not like Eliphaz had this vision necessarily while sitting with Job on the, on the ash heap. But he has this vision. And the whole point of the vision comes down in verse 17. It says, Can mortal men be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust. In his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without any regard, anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? They do not die, and that without wisdom. And he's looking at Job and saying, Job, you've got to understand that everybody sins, okay? It's not just we're coming after you, but you've got to acknowledge it or God's not going to take care of it. And we look at this and we think, what's wrong with Eliphaz? Does Eliphaz love God? Yeah, he loves God. Does he have a good, sound doctrine and theology in many areas? Yeah, he does. 
So what's the problem? He doesn't understand the situation. He's jumped to too many conclusions. And the problem is he goes through all this with Job. He's looking at Job who's tried to justify himself and will continue to do so. And he says, Job, if you're looking at this whole situation and saying that you are righteous, that means God is not. Now, does Job say that? Does Job ever come out and say, God, you're just not righteous. You've done this wrong. And he, he's going to hint at it time and time again that he doesn't understand because it looks like this. But Job never comes out and says it. But is the message coming across clearly to his friends? Well, his friends are looking and say, Job, you're saying God's not righteous and you know better than he does. And we look at that and say, oh, I would never do that. Yeah, that sin's more common than you think. You ever looked at a situation and thought, oh, how come those people have to go through that? That's terrible. Who's in control? Whenever we look at a situation and we say God's ways, God's methods, God's dealing with people, isn't the way I would do it. We're doing the same thing that Job was doing. We're looking and saying, God, I don't understand what you're doing. And if I were God, I'd have done it differently. So who are we impugning? God and his righteousness. But we don't really feel like that. And that's where Job is, is he's struggling through these things. But whenever we think that God's unfair, or that we would have done things a different way, we make ourselves more righteous than God. And that's part of what Job is struggling with as he's going through this and his friends never really catch on the way they ought to catch on. And then we see Job's dilemma in chapter 5. Eliphaz looks at him and says, Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? And he goes on for five or six more verses and he basically says, Job, your problem is who are you going to call on to make your case? The angels aren't coming to help you out on that one. God's not going to hear you that he's unjust on that one. So, and the problem is, what's Eliphaz's conclusion? Just repent of your sin and get it over with, and God will be merciful. God will be gracious. Again, does Eliphaz have a good handle on God's mercy and grace? He does. He just doesn't understand Job. He doesn't know what's going on in Job's life. And so he brings this whole thing to him and he says, if you'll only do this. And at the end of this, again, to make his point, look at verse 6. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. What is he saying? Again, this is all this poetry. What's he trying to say there? Eliphaz is looking at Job and saying, this isn't just happenstance. We know who's in control. Bad things just don't creep up on you and God didn't have a part in it. So if God had a part in it, you better get your act together. And again, he reinforces that with verse 7. Look at verse 7. But man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. Now, is this just a complaint from Eliphaz, or is he trying to teach? He's trying to teach. And what is he saying, again, with this eloquent... How many of you have been ahead of campfire? And you set the campfire, and if you've got the right conditions, it starts sparking and, and popping, and sparks fly, and where do they go? They always rise upward. Now, you've got to watch where they fall because they can cause problems for you there. But they rise upward. And he's looking and saying, just as sure as if you light that fire, those sparks are going to go upward. Man's born to trouble because he's going to sin and he's going to get himself into trouble. And trouble, sin, brings trouble. And so he's looking at Job and saying, come on, Job, be realistic. You've got no place to turn. You need to deal with this sin. And again, he's not going after Job because he doesn't care. He's looking at Job and says, you know, you're in a bad place. We love you. Just get it right. 
and get beyond this. God will take care of you. God is gracious. There's an answer. Is he right about that? There's an answer other than just dying and being done with it? Is that, is that God's will in the book of Job, that Job gets through all this, gets it right, and then he just takes him home? No, it's not. Why do you think God told Satan you can do anything but take his life? Now, Job doesn't know that. He feels like he's going to die. He's got a terrible situation. But on top of that, we get to the end of the book, and what is God going to do? He's going to bless Job incredibly because he's going to be glorified through what happens in Job's life, and it's not by his death. And so as he's looking at all these things, his friends have it right in that perspective. Get it right and seek God. And the last thing they say, seek God's deliverance. Verse 8, as for me, don't you love that when you're going through trouble? Your friend looks at you, now if I were you, and you're like, you shouldn't roll your eyes, but you see, at least internally you're rolling your eyes and say, oh brother, here it comes. Well, here's Eliphaz, and he's looking, if I were you, I'd seek God. And to God I would commit my cause. And basically he's saying, he's not telling Job to go back and tell God you're righteous, is he? What does he say when he says, I commit my cause to God? God, I've done wrong. Admit your sin. And let God take care of it. Let God restore you. And then he has this wonderful description of God, verses 9 through 16. Take the time to read through that in depth. I'm just going to touch on a few things as we get ready to bring this to a close. But it says there, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He's looking at Job and all of his despair. He says, remember who your God is. He does great things. He does marvelous. You can't keep track of all the wonderful things he does. And until chapter 1, isn't that where Job lived? He, he was a man of integrity. He feared God. He ran from evil. And God had just tremendously blessed him as he's doing these things. And he's going, remember who God is. He gives rain. He frustrates the devices of the crafty and evil. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and schemes. This is a great God. And, and then he says in verse 15, here's the important thing for Job again at the end of this. He saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and the hand of the mighty. God saves the needy. Is Job needy at this point? Yeah, and who does he really need to be saved from? Right now, those three friends would be nice if God would save him from them because they just got it wrong. And they got a great, they're sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. And it says here in verse 16, so the poor have hope. Well, why is he telling Job that the poor have hope? You know, nobody's more poor than Job right now. He went from rich to nothing in one day. And he's looking and saying, this God wants to help you. In verse 17, behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. You can see it in Job's face. He's not buying it. And so he says, you know, you need to remember this great God. He reproves those that he loves. Is that biblical truth? Hebrews, whom the Lord loves, he he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. And so he doesn't have it necessarily all wrong, but he's got it wrong concerning Job. And so he brings this impassioned appeal based upon who God is and what God does. And then in verse 27, he says this, Behold, this we have searched out, and it is true. Hear and know it is for your good. He should have started with that and stopped. Was what happened to Job for his good? Careful how you answer that. Was it for his good? Who permitted it? God did. In permitting it, we talked that first couple weeks. What is God's 
ultimate intent in all that Job is going through. One, he's going to teach Job. But what else is his intent? I'm going to be glorified. Because people are going to know that Job just doesn't fear me because I give him all these things. Job fears me because of who I am, who he is, and the relationship that we have one with another. And God said, I'm going to be glorified because I'm not the God of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You know what Eliphaz has been preaching? He's been preaching the heart of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Because what is he kind of telling Job through all of this? If you'll just get right with God, what is he kind of telling Job's going to happen? God's a gracious God, and he'll take care of you. He'll get things back on track for you. And bless his heart, he's got a lot of things right, but loving God doesn't necessarily take care and take away all our problems overnight, does it? Because God's got a purpose. He's got a purpose in suffering. He's got a purpose as he walks us through life. He has an ultimate goal. Is God's ultimate goal your comfort level? We don't want to say no, but that's the truth. It's not. God's ultimate goal is to take you out of your comfort level because he has predestined that you be like Jesus Christ. And sometimes that takes trouble. And sometimes that takes suffering. Didn't Jesus tell us that? If your master suffers, you will also suffer. Follow me. Peter didn't like that message. We talked about that. He thought, this this doesn't sound like a great idea to me. How about John? No, take care of you. And and the same thing's happening as Eliphaz finishes this, and he's looking at Job, and he's saying, you need to bring these things under control. You need to think about these things. And despite his erroneous assumptions, that such catastrophe could mean only that Job has committed an obvious wicked sin, Eliphaz's optimism at the end for Job speaks eloquently of his high concept of who God is and God's grace. Does Eliphaz believe God can restore Job? He's got it kind of wrong on why, but he understands that God's a God of mercy. Yet whatever you did, Job, confess it. We serve a merciful God. God's a God of grace. Not only will he forgive you, he'll probably put you back in some kind of standing, maybe not exactly where you came from, but he'll take care of you. And he looks and he says, God's a God of mercy and God's a God of grace. So as we see Eliphaz through the rest of this, I want you to remember, Eliphaz loves Job. He's working with Job because he doesn't want to see him sitting on the ash heap. Eliphaz knows a lot about God, but Eliphaz doesn't know a lot about Job. And Eliphaz is going to, at the end of this, be told the same thing that Peter was told when he's looking over at John. Take care of you. And I love the irony at the end of this book. He looks at those three and says, you better have Job pray for you. Can you imagine? You've been there for days telling Job, get right with God. And God said, well, you know, he's got some issues, but if it's, when push comes to shove, you better have Job pray for you. Because Job loves me. And Job's been struggling But Job still fears me. And you're never going to see Job lose his fear of God, which is an admirable thing in the midst of all this. So what do we take away from this again? Doctrine and theology is good, and you need to be studying the Word. So don't take away, well, you know, look at Eliphaz. He had all that doctrine, and he messed it up. In fact, he left all kinds of quotes that he used all through Scripture because he loved the Lord. But be careful how we judge the circumstances of other folks. Are there times when you need to step into somebody's life and say, hey, I see sin in your life, and you see sin in their lives? We ought to do that. 
uh, we ought to be a little like Eliphaz. And we're probably going to have to use his little phrase there. Is it okay if I talk to you? Are you going to get irritated with me? And the answer is probably. But if you love him, do it. And Eliphaz did. But at the same time, if you don't know what's going on and you just see somebody struggling, don't think you know what's happening behind the scenes until you find out. Because Eliphaz is going to do more damage than good before the end of the day. And God's going to rebuke him. He had a good heart. He had good intentions. We've got a church full of people with good hearts and not Eliphaz's. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, as you look at people, take good hearts and good intentions and truly let God work in their lives and do what God gives you the opportunity to do. But don't overstep. I think Eliphaz has overstepped a little bit. Good intentions. Really sincere, but sincerely wrong. Be used to be an encouragement, but also take that encouragement and look in the mirror and say, what about me? Let's pray. Father, I know this is an interesting place to stop. It would have been nice to get through Job's response and at least bring it to somewhat of a close, and we'll do that next week. But I pray that you'll help us to take this whole situation and just examine where we are. We need to have the faith of an Eliphaz to believe that God is there and that he judges and that he works and that whatsoever man soweth he will also reap. But, Lord, we don't always know exactly why someone else is going through deep waters. May we be willing to give them the benefit of the doubt when it's called for. Maybe we be willing to sympathize and to be willing to bring comfort where it's needed. God, may we be willing to trust you, even working in our own lives, when we don't know the why all the time. Father, help us to examine our hearts to make sure it's not sin and whatever you may be doing, if we don't find sin in our lives, and may we place our lives in the hands of a loving and a good God who knows what's best for us and trust you even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Lord, help us even as we're about to go into the Lord's Supper now to remember, to remember who you are, regardless of our circumstances, that you loved us. You loved us enough that Jesus Christ came, he suffered, he died, and he offers salvation to us because of all that he went through for us on Calvary. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.